0: You may be seated. If you would bow with me in prayer and then we're going to spend some time uh, in God's word together this morning. Lord, we thank you uh, for this glorious day. Uh, We thank you for the time that we have uh, to come together as your people. We pray that as we spend this time together in in singing your praises and uh, with the great privilege of coming to you in prayer. In celebrating communion from opening your word and and reading and hearing your word read this morning, that you would meet us in this place, that you would be moving, uh, that you would be moving freely in this place, that you'd be taking the truths of your word and applying them to our hearts and our minds. We pray that you would show us uh, how dependent we are on you for all things this morning Uh, and, and that in doing so that we would see you more clearly, that you hold all things together. Uh, that you love us, that you sustain us, that you keep us. I pray that we would see that and, and just wrestle with that more clearly today. We pray that as we talk about your word and how you've preserved it for us and how you've given it to us, that you would just fill us with an awe and a wonder of the way that you have preserved it and kept it, that we can know you. We thank you for that fact. We pray that you would be glorified in our time this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, So, welcome. Good morning. Glad you're here. Uh, What a beautiful day for us to get together. Uh, If you're visiting or you're new with us this week, you you picked a good day. We're actually starting a new sermon series uh, this morning. We just wrapped up the one we were in uh, last week and, and that came to a close. And now we're starting a new one. And the title that we kind of put over the next few weeks that we're going to talk about comes to us from Jude's letter in verse 22. And it says real simply, it's a real short verse in there. And it just says, be merciful with those who doubt in the book of Jude, if you've ever read it, it's just one chapter. It's very short. It's very succinct. But what it tells us is to contend for the faith, to stand up for the things that God's shown us and what he's teaching, teaching us to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. And then right in the middle of that is that little verse that says, be merciful on those who doubt. And so starting this week and for the next several weeks, what we're going to do is we're just going to look at some big areas that sometimes I think we can struggle with in faith. Uh, Part of that is the culture we live in today. We're bombarded with with ideas about who God is and uh, what his word is and how we can know him and all sorts of things like that. And so I want us to spend time thinking through some of those things together. And so as I was preparing for this and been thinking about this the last few weeks, I've spent a lot of time reading different polls and different articles, even read a couple books of people that are not Christians that have kind of come at the Christian faith from different ways. And so trying to get a handle on what some of the big objections are, the struggles that people have, the areas that kind of bring uh, maybe some doubt arises in our mind. And so today I want us to start With God's word, with the Bible, Uh, if you've ever been here with us, if you just here for the first time today, you heard Luke stand up and read God's word and he gets to the end and he says, this is the word of the Lord. And and as a body, we say thanks be to God. I I don't know if that's new to you, if that's from your tradition and where you grew up. When I came to Church of the Apostles uh, 10 years ago, I wasn't it was not my normal. It's kind of like, okay, that's kind of cool. And then I started to think about what we're saying. That this is God's word and we hear it read. We are hearing from God and he's spoken to us. And then we say, thanks be to God. Thank you, God, that you've let us know who you are, that you've given us your word in this way. And so we respond with thanks be to God. And so we do that every time we have public reading of the word. I think that's a really cool thing. I'm very fond of saying uh, from time to time, just a reminder as we open God's word, Isaiah 40 and verse 8. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And so I I, I have little phrases that you've probably been around for a while. You know, I like to say, but God creates and he recreates through his word. He made all things through the power of his word. He holds us together by the power of his word. And then he recreates us by his word. And so we take that very seriously. Those aren't just things we say. That's what we believe as a church and we hold fast to. But for many, that seems crazy to say that this book is the very words of God. Many in our culture today that would even call themselves Christians go, yeah, I don't really know about all that. Like, I'm okay with Jesus and I love God, but all that stuff that this is God's very word, I don't know about that. And so I want us to think about that this morning. As I was reading and kind of background and thinking, and some of the books I was reading and the stuff I was looking at, there's there's a very clear narrative in our culture today about the Bible, from secular um, scholarship, from those that would be opponents of the Bible, and it goes something like this: that that the Bible grew out of oral tradition over a long, long time. It was freely edited and embellished. It was passed from person to person when it finally was written down. It was written down with no real concern for historical accuracy. It's really just telling myths that grew over generations and generations. And they're nice stories and they might have some spiritual implications and some helps, but they're certainly not history and it's not to be trusted. Another layer of that today goes to say, and there were all these books written, not just what we have in the Bible, There were all these other letters and things written and we left out a ton of stuff. The early church left out the things they didn't like. And so what we have is, is at best a smattering of some stories put together that we can't really trust. And and that's not something that uh, I've just heard said, although I've heard that said from people from time to time. But that's what you see if you turn on like the history channel. That's basically the way they present the Bible. See. I, I don't know if you've ever done that. History Channel uh, will have a thing around Easter about the Bible and stuff. And it's like, oh, great, I'm going to watch it. And then they tell me this. I'm like, what? And so I want us to think about that this morning. Uh, what I just sketch for you is what Richard Dawkins puts in his The God Delusion. Richard Dawkins is an atheist who's made it his mission to try to destroy anyone who thinks religion makes any sense at all. Not just Christianity, but all religions. But that's the argument he uses in his book. And so I want us just to think through some of those objections today. And there's two reasons I want to do this. One, if you're struggling with some of those areas, you've heard those. Maybe you've watched the thing on History Channel and it plants a seed of doubt in your heart and you go, I don't really know. That seems plausible. And then you struggle with it. Or or maybe you're here today and you wholeheartedly embrace that idea and you're not a Christian and you don't believe. And it seems ludicrous to believe because of how ridiculous the Bible seems to you. Or maybe you're in a third category, you believe it, you hold fast to it, you'd say, I love Jesus, I love God's word, but I don't really know how I would answer those objections if somebody asked me. And so that's why we're going to do this this morning and spend time thinking about it, because my my answer to you is the Bible is not hopelessly unreliable. It's very reliable that we can trust that it's God's Word. And I want to show you that from some things that we know, not just in Scripture itself, but outside of Scripture and what we know from history and archaeology and a lot of other sorts of things along that uh, line. And so this is the way we're going to do it. Real simple this morning. I'm going to paint in very broad strokes to try to make a case to you that the Bible's reliable. That what we have is actual history written down that's been preserved and passed down to us in a way that we can believe what we hold in our hands is God's very word. And the second thing is, if you're a skeptic or you're not quite there in belief and you have questions, I'm gonna make a challenge to you. And then if you are a believer and you hold fast that this is God's word, I'm gonna make a challenge to you. And that's it. And so with that said, there's a couple other things I need to say before we jump into this. If you're visiting or you're new here, you've only been here a couple times, this is not normal. I don't normally do it this way, right? And the reason I don't normally do it this way is because we do believe this is God's word. And so the way we normally structure this time is we open a passage and we work our way through it and we do what we call exegetical preaching. We seek to expound or explain clearly what God's word says and let God's word speak for God's word. But this is a little different today because I'm trying to show you why we do that. Why we believe that. And so if you're here or you're visiting or you walked in today, it's going to be a little different today in the next couple of weeks than it usually is. And then we'll go right back to what we always do, looking at scripture and expounding those texts and going through that. But then the second thing I want to tell you is if you're a note taker and you're like, I do want to know this and I want to write these things down, and I want to hold all these things together. I understand I'm that way. Great. Take notes. I'm not going to discourage you from taking them, but I am going to let you know when you leave here today and you walk out towards the fellowship hall on the left. I've printed outlines that are six pages long with all the details and everything I'm going to talk about. And so, if you want that, and you want to wrestle with that, and you want to know how you would answer that, or you want to check me and go, I don't know that that's true or that's right. That's why they're there, right? So this is to equip us and help us, but also answer those objections. And then lastly. If we hit on things and you look at that outline and that stuff and it don't answer the things that really bother you about when we come to God's word that you struggle with. Would you take the time to write that down? Would you write it down on one of the note cards that's in front of you for prayer requests or your name or or just take a piece of the bulletin and write it in there and put it in the offering or hand it to me or send us an email So what we're going to do at the end of this series is I'm going to take all those questions and we're going to look to make sure that we hit on those big ones. And several people are saying, well, you missed this part. And this is my question. I want to make sure we answer them because I believe there's actually answers. I'm not avoiding any of it. It's just for the sake of time. We're not going to be exhaustive on this. So with that said, let's start together and just consider this question. Is this authentic? Does it even make sense to call this God's word? To say that the Bible is trustworthy. Can we trust that what we hold in our hands, and we'll start with this question, is what they actually wrote down? That's one of the big objections that, yeah, they wrote it down, but then it got copied and copied and copied and and the meaning got lost and it all got messed up. And so we can't even really trust that what we hold in our hands is what they actually wrote down when the Bible was written. And so I want you just to consider this. I'm going to spend most of my time considering the New Testament and specifically the Gospels. But I want you to think about ancient writings that we have that have come down to us from ancient times, whether Plato or Aristotle or Caesar or any ancient writer like that. And what we can look at is we can go back and we can know that the way that those writings have been passed down by handwritten copies, that is the way it's been passed down. That's the same is true for the Bible. Right. So when people make that objection, it's been copied over and over and over by hand. There's all kinds of errors, all those things. That's true. It has been copied by hand over and over and over again. Right. Those are called manuscripts. Handwritten copies are called manuscripts. And so when we go and we look at any work of ancient literature, what we find is we have a handful of authentic manuscripts that point us back to when they were copied. So, for example, Aristotle who wrote over 2000 years ago, we have 10 manuscripts of his writings. The earliest manuscript of Aristotle that we have was twelve hundred years after he wrote it. So it was copied and copied and copied and copied and copied. And then finally we found one from twelve hundred years after he wrote it. And that's the oldest we have. And we've got about 10 of them. The same is true for Plato, for Caesar, all of those guys. It's between five to ten manuscripts that we have, and all of them date from a thousand years or later than when it was first written. And what most people will say is, yeah, that's what Caesar wrote. But we will take that and go, yeah, I think that's a fair representation of what Plato's ideas were and what he wrote. And so I want you to think about that, and then I want you to consider what we have for the New Testament. The New Testament alone we have 25,000 manuscripts, 25,000 plus handwritten copies of the New Testament that have been passed down to us. The earliest known fragment that we have is of the gospel of John. And it dates to 120 AD, 30 years after John wrote it. 30, not a thousand, not 1200, not 1500, 30 years after he wrote it down was found in Egypt, and so they have surmised that it had to have been written by 90 A.D. because it had been circulated enough to get to Egypt. And so what we have when we start to look at what we have about the Bible is we have all of these manuscripts, all these copies, all these handwritten manuscripts in all these different places that have been circulated in all these ways. And so what we can trace back and see is in the very early first century, about 150 A.D., We have church fathers writing and quoting from Scripture what we have in the New Testament, writing letters saying this is what the New Testament is. These are the letters that were written by eyewitnesses that we can trust. We have enough uh, letters written by 200 A.D. of early church fathers that we could compile the entire New Testament from their writings. That's how much it was quoted. And so when you start to look at the facts of just what we know we have the entire New Testament bound together as such by 200 AD We have the entire Bible put together in the same way by three hundred and twenty five AD. And so when people go, well, you can't even trust what it says. That's not what the evidence says. It's not what the mountain of manuscripts would tell us. And so people go, yeah, but there's still errors. There's still copying areas, errors when somebody writes something down and they give it to somebody else and they copy it and so on and so forth. But here's the incredible thing of what I believe God's done. I believe it's a miracle. It's not just happenstance that it happened this way. But because we have twenty five thousand manuscripts, we can cross reference those. We can look at all the different manuscripts and we can quickly ascertain where there was a a copying error because we have so many to compare. And there's different strains, and they've been sent out in all these different ways, and you can take them. And so what it's led scholars to believe is simply this, that the New Testament that you hold in your hands today is 99.5% pure. That is it's exactly what was written down. And that 0.5% of the few texts that we wrestle with and we go, is that exactly what it says? We can still put that together by textual criticism and looking at it and then hold that together. And you know what? That 0.5% again, I think this is God's doing. No issues of doctrine are in that half percent. No significant issues of who Jesus is and what he did and what he said and what it means for us are in that 0.5%. And so, simply put, when people say it's been copied and copied and copied and you can't even trust what's in your hand, that's a lie. That's not true. And you don't have to take my word for it. I would say this is not even a matter of faith. You can actually go look all this up. You can see this and touch this and test this. And so if you're that kind of mind, don't take my word for it. Go look it up yourself. And so what we have in our hands is what they wrote down. But there's another question that arises out of that. You go, okay, great. What we have in our hands is what was written down. But does that mean that doesn't tell us that what they wrote down weren't lies or what they believed to be true or what they embellish? Or which they so wanted to be true. Correct? Well, yeah, it's what they wrote. But who knows what they wrote was actually true. And so I want you to think about what we know about the Gospels in particular. You know what I'm talking about when I say the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. The first four books of the New Testament. Our Bible is divided in Old Testament, New Testament. Old Testament is those writings that are before Jesus. New Testament are those that are after Jesus. The four Gospels are written to tell you the life of Jesus, what he said, did, what he went. It's a historical picture of the person and work of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so what we know from fragments, when I was talking about the Gospel of John just a minute ago, what we know from archaeology is that John was written last of the four Gospels and it was written no later than 95 A.D. Now, I think we know this. Around zero is when Jesus was born. That's where we get our dating. It's actually a little messed up in there. 30 A.D. is his death and resurrection in there. And so within one generation, John, an eyewitness, one of Jesus' disciples, writes down what he saw. And he writes that by 95 A.D. Then we can work back and piece together that Mark wrote his gospel first by no later than 65 A.D., And then Matthew and Luke write their Gospels by seventy five. So we have all four Gospels written in the lifetime of the Gospel writers, two of which Matthew and John are written by eyewitnesses of Jesus's twelve disciples that were with them every day for three years. So eyewitness accounts that were there. What we piece together and what we know is Mark's Gospel was written by Mark, who was a disciple of Peter, who may or may not have been around Jesus. We don't know for sure. But he's writing Peter's eyewitness account. And you can put that together by just reading the book, because what you'll find when you read Mark's gospel is Peter's right in the middle of all of it. It's because it's his eyewitness account. He's the one that's telling the story. And then Luke, who is a physician and a historian, we don't know for certain if Luke ever met the historical Jesus. We're not sure. But what he does tell us is that his is an eyewitness account where he's interviewed and looked at all the people involved. And so I want you just to consider this for just a second, because usually what happens is people say it's it's legends that have been embellished over time. So we can't trust it, that Jesus was this great man and a great teacher and he did all these wonderful things. And then he died and his disciples were crushed. And so they started telling these stories and they started to embellish and they started to add miracles. And they even got to the point where they added that he'd raised from the dead. And that got told and retold and retold. And when it finally got written down, everybody had forgotten what really happened and it took hold. That's kind of the way it goes today. That's actually what the History Channel will tell you. The problem with that is that they all wrote their Gospels within one generation. That they were eyewitnesses to the accounts. It takes four generations for a myth to develop and to be considered fact over time because generations have to die out and the story has to be repeated and then it takes hold. That's not what happened. And so we have a problem. That doesn't make sense. There's another problem when you begin to dig into these. And I'd like for you just to turn with me real quickly to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15 in the white Bible. It's on page 497. The one with the blue stripe, it's on five fifty four. And what I want to show you is not only is it an eyewitness account of what actually happened, it's footnoted. I don't know if you knew that. There's actually ancient footnotes in the Bible the way they did it. Now, it's not like exactly like the way we would do it, but it's there. Look at Mark chapter 15 and verse 21. So Jesus is on his way to the cross to be crucified and Mark tells us this and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross and you may read that and you read through the gospels and you just breeze right over that and you think why did he even put that in there the reason he put that in there Is that this was written within a generation, 30 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection. It was written as a letter to the early churches to be written, to be read out loud in the church. And it was a way of saying, if you want to check on this, go ask Alexander and Rufus. They're still around. There's no other reason to include that. Simon, the Cyrene, it's a way of Mark or Peter writing with Mark, writing it down for him to say, hey, you guys know Alexander and Rufus are still around. Go ask them. Go check on this. Scholars believe that Rufus was so around and so part of the church that Paul actually makes mention of him in Romans 16. Say hello to Rufus for me and his mom taking care of me. And so part of what he's doing is he's saying, check me out on this. And so the the the. Uh, polemic against the Bible today that say says that it came over long periods of time and it got added to and changed and whatever the Bible itself refutes that when the writers say check me on that go ask them that's why that's there and if you look at other ancient literature you see that that's exactly what that is it's a footnote so I don't know if you've ever noticed that before ever saw that but it's there But then not only that, as as you read what they're saying and what they're telling us, if you turn over one page to Luke chapter 1, the very next page there, listen to the way Luke starts his gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just of those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so the gospel originally spread through an oral tradition, explaining what Jesus had done and his teachings by his disciples. And then there comes a time when they say, we need to write this down. These guys are going to die off. And it needs to be written down. And so Luke says, I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to all the eyewitnesses and I'm going to write down exactly what they saw and what they did. And I'm going to do it in an orderly account that you can have it. And so the idea that these writers were not concerned about history or accuracy, that it was myths and and legends that grew over time is completely false. It's just not true. And then when you start to read for yourself these gospels and you begin to dig into them, what you see is they are eyewitness accounts. For example, in Mark chapter four, Jesus and the disciples are on a boat, you know, this story and a great big storm blows up and the disciples start freaking out. They think they're going to die. And Jesus is asleep. He's sleeping through the storm. That's such a cool picture. He's kind of like, ah, it's fine. But what Mark tells us is Jesus was laying in the boat asleep on a cushion. That's what he says. Mark four thirty-eight. 38. Go read it says he's asleep with his head on a cushion. And again, you may say, like, well, so what? The so what is this is an eyewitness account of what actually happened because he's giving you details to what he remembers about what he saw. And you can go, oh, wait a second. So what? You can make that up. Let's say they did make it up and they love Jesus so much and they wanted these stories to go on. So they put some details in there to make it sound more plausible. Here's the problem. Realistic fiction as we know it would not be invented for another 1,500 years after the Gospels were written. And so if you believe that Mark put details in there to make it sound more plausible, then that means that Mark invented realistic fiction and nobody picked up on it for another 1,500 years. That doesn't make any sense. What makes sense is is an eyewitness telling you what he saw and what he remembered and writing it down. And so not only do what we hold in our hands, what they actually wrote down, it was written down by eyewitnesses who were there and saw it. Go check all these things. Don't take my word for it. But what we have is actually what was written down by eyewitnesses. You can trust what you hold in your hands. You can't trust what you read about what it says about who Jesus is and what it did. Now, I understand we get to this point and it doesn't prove who Jesus is. It doesn't prove our faith. It doesn't prove that he raised from the dead. It doesn't prove any of those things. It just proves that what we have was written down by people who were there who saw it. So what about the objection that these were just a few writings and there were a lot of other writings that got suppressed? Have you ever heard this before? That's the History Channel's favorite one. There were, they'll they'll say there were all these books. Imagine a huge library of books and they just took and they pulled 27 out for the New Testament and they left everything else out. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but you can watch that on History Channel. These guys seem really smart and they're telling you all this and you're like, well, I don't know. Maybe that is what happened. And how do I know? How can I trust what I have is in front of me? Or every few years, uh, Time Magazine will come out and they'll put on the cover uh, the Gospel of Thomas, right? It'll be this big story. Lost Gospel of Jesus calls into light everything we know about Jesus. The Gospel of Thomas is a real gospel. The problem is it wasn't written by Thomas, the disciple of Jesus. It was written by somebody writing under his name and it was written in 175 A.D. So think about that. Mark 65 Matthew and Luke 75, John 95, Gospel of Thomas 175. Not eyewitnesses, not people who were there, not people who knew the historical Jesus. Somebody writing under someone else's name with a totally different worldview, trying to push a totally different agenda. you go, well, yeah, it's an ancient writing. It does talk about Jesus. It does talk about. But all it really tells us is what people in the first century, 175 A.D., who were Gnostics, thought about Jesus. That's all it is. But sometimes people will hear that and they'll go, but they left this out and they kept this. If you're compiling a work of who Jesus is, what are you going to take? The four eyewitness accounts of people that knew and lived and walked with Jesus, who wrote down what they saw and what they heard? Or are you going to take the. Uh, word of someone who lived 100 plus 140 years later who never met him. I'm going to say, if you want to know what I'm like, which you probably don't, but if you wanted to know what I'm like or you wanted to write a biography about my life, you would probably ask Joanna. Because she's lived with me every day for the last 15 years. And you'd get a pretty good account of what I'm like on a day to day basis. You wouldn't ask somebody who's never met me who writes that down 150 years after I die, would you? You don't really need to know a whole lot more than that. There's a lot more to go into if you if you're interested about these other Gospels. But the Gospel of Thomas was the earliest of the ones they talk about. All the rest were even later than that. And so the narrative becomes, but they left out all these other things. And here's why. In the three hundreds A.D., the church got together and they said, this is the Bible and it's sealed and nothing else is part of it. And the reason is because these other writings started to be circulated and they started to be passed around and people would start to say, well, what about the gospel of Thomas? And they go, no, no, no. We, we've been functioning this way as a church for the last three hundred years with these writings and what the apostle says and not these other things. And so they sat down and they said, this is it. This is in and this is out. But we can go back and piece together by one hundred and fifty A.D. They were writing letters, church leaders to each other, to each other, discussing what's scripture and what's not. Three hundreds, they decided to kind of make it official, have a council, get together, talk about it. But they'd already been functioning this way, the whole history of the church. And so when you hear on the history channel Or you hear Richard Dawkins, they just tell it as there were all these books and they were all equal and they were all the same. And they pick and choose what they want. And that's not true. And so my point in in doing all of this is just to tell you there are answers. You can watch those things and you can doubt and you can wrestle with it and struggle with it. But there's answers to them. And it actually makes sense. It holds together. And so I say all of that to say that what you have is what was written down by eyewitnesses. And it's all together here for you. But that still doesn't prove any of it. It still doesn't prove who Jesus was or what he did or if he raised from the dead or not. And so I want to just leave you with this last little part here. And it gets a little bit away from the Bible, but it's important for us to consider what the Bible itself teaches. So when we start to get to the to the person and work of Jesus, you could go through all these things and people go, yeah, but this whole thing that Jesus is God That he raised from the dead. Come on. That doesn't make sense. I don't believe that. Those people were easily duped. You know, maybe they were so crushed when he died that they had to invent this thing that he raised from the dead. And that spread. And so they were simple minded, ancient people. And they don't have they don't know what we know. And so people will come up with all these reasons to say that these guys overnight went from uh, seeing Jesus as a man to worshiping him as God and proclaiming his resurrection. There's the swoon theory that he didn't really die, that they laid him in his grave, but he wasn't actually dead. And then he crawled out a few days later and was like, "Ah, I'm fine. I raised from the dead. And the reason we invent these things is we're so sure or we think we're so sure. And the reason is simply this, because we believe from science today that you cannot raise from the dead. You ask anybody. That is our cultural bias. It cannot happen. We know from science that when you're dead, you're dead and that's it. You don't raise from the dead. And so they say today that doesn't make any sense. But here's the thing I want you to consider. The people of Jesus's day didn't believe in resurrection either. They weren't idiots. They didn't know what we know scientifically, but they still had their beliefs that were deep seated, And one of them was you don't raise from the dead when you die. The reasons were not scientific. They were different. And here's big reason why. 300 BC, a guy named Alexander the Great conquers the whole earth. And he Hellenizes the people. That is, he's going to make them Greek in their culture. You know what Greek culture said about resurrection? About life after death? Is that you wanted to get away from a physical body because the physical world is bad. It's evil. It's dirty and it's gross. And you want to die so that you can get rid of this body and be done with this earth. And that was the predominant cultural influence of the day. And everybody believed that. Now, the Jews did believe in resurrection, but they believed there would be one resurrection on the last day when the Messiah comes and he conquers the world and he sits on his throne and then the dead will be raised for judgment. But the idea of a suffering servant in the middle of history that would die by execution at the hands of the conquering or oppressing government, the Romans made no sense to anyone. To make up that story and then say our leader died and rose again and this is what he did, no one would have believed that. Unless it actually happened. There is no plausible explanation except that Jesus actually defeated death and conquered the grave and raised and was risen again. It's the only way that it holds together. And so we come up with all these theories to do away with the reality, because what happens is if we believe what happens and what the Bible tells us. Then the call on our life is absolute. Why do you think people are OK with saying that Plato's works? Yeah, I believe that's what he said. But not the Bible. We have infinitesimally more evidence of its validity. Because Plato doesn't really change your life. But don't make any call in your life that you're like, man, this is serious. This is life or death. This is eternal life. This is the God of the universe. And so we come up with all these ways to discredit and get around it. But the truth is, it is reliable. You can believe the Bible. You can believe what you hold in your hands. That it is God's word. And so as we end, I just want to end with this. Just a couple of things here. One, I haven't touched on the Old Testament here at all, if you've noticed that. That wasn't on purpose, like trying to avoid it. The reason is this, is I feel like when you look at the New Testament and what we know about the Gospels, we can trust these eyewitness accounts and they take us to Jesus. And they tell us that God came to earth in the form of a man and he died and he was risen again and that he is the Lord who is sovereign over all. And if that happened, and if Jesus is who he says he is, then we should look at what he says about the Old Testament. And when you go and you look at what Jesus says about the Old Testament, what you hear Jesus saying is that every single word of the Old Testament was inspired by God. They had all of it put together, written in the common language of his day. It was what we know exactly what we have in the Old Testament and Jesus puts his stamp of approval on it. So I just simply say this. If you don't believe the resurrection and you don't believe Jesus and you don't believe any of the New Testament, and what it says then you don't have to worry about the rest of it. But if you do and if you believe Jesus is who he says he is, then we need to look real hard at what Jesus says about the Old Testament. And he says all of it's true. That's the kind of end book on the Bible itself. Like I said, painting in huge, broad strokes and I've left out tons of things. I actually sat down and I wrote an outline to do this. I was like, this is going to take two and a half hours. I was like, how do I pare it down to where we can just do it like this big picture? And so that's what that outlines for. If you have other questions and other things or this is bringing up a whole lot of other questions, which I hope it is. Let's talk about those. Let's continue to walk through that together. But my last point and my last challenge, if you're a skeptic, you go, I don't know about the Bible. I don't know about any of this. Yeah, 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 maybe it's what they wrote down. Maybe we can uh, trust that it's eyewitnesses, but it doesn't convince me at all of who Jesus is or what he did or what he said. And so here's my challenge to you if you fall in that category. Would you read it? I, I, I dare you to try to take it apart. Start with the gospel of John. Eyewitness account of what happens and what he tells you about who Jesus is and what he did. If you'd like somebody to read through it with you, I would love to do that. It's one of my favorite things. People that are not sure about what they believe and they're wrestling with it. Would you read through the gospel of John with me and let's do that together? And I just all I'm going to do is point you to this is what it says. This is what it says. You wrestle with who Jesus is and what he says. Because if he's God and this is his word and he's spoken to us in this way, then it's very powerful to come into contact with him. And I don't have to do any of it, which, by the way, is why we do exegetical teaching. We believe it's actually God's word. But then the second uh, challenge, and I would say this is to believers. If you do believe this and you do say, I believe that this is God's word and I do believe he's protected it and he's kept it. And he's made sure that it's pure and what we have is his word. There's two things I would say to you. One, you need to be able to defend big idea what we just talked about. You need to know why you believe what you believe. And so take the time to walk through some of the things we talked about. Grab one of those outlines. Let's talk about it together. How would I answer these common objections people have? We're called to do that. We're called to give a reason for the hope that is within us. We're called to contend for the faith and what uh, uh, Jude says. And so I would challenge you to be able, doesn't mean you have to be an expert on all these things, but to be able to give the big idea. What, how can we trust that what we have is the Bible, is God's word? But then my second challenge to you would be, if you believe it, would you treat it like it's God's word? Would you give it the time that it deserves And I'm I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. I'm talking to myself. How often I can give other things priority in my life. How often I can let other things speak into what I believe and what I see and the way I operate when God has given us his very word to know him. If you believe it, would you treat it that way? Because the wonderful thing is what you see in the midst of it is that God is real and that he loves you so much that he came and he entered in and he died for your sin and he took all your mess upon himself and he gives you his righteousness. And he's gone to great lengths to tell you that. That's glorious good news. So let's pray. God, we thank you that you have loved us enough. That you would reveal yourself to us in this way. That you would preserve your word. That you would inspire, that you would call men to walk with you, to see you, to know you, to love you. That you would give them the gift of the Holy Spirit in their lives. That you would inspire their very words that we can know you in this way. I pray that you would draw us more fully to yourself. I pray for those here today that struggle with doubt in so many areas. About if you're real, about trusting your word, about what it means to follow you. I pray that you would move mightily in their lives, that you would draw them to you. To know you in a saving and loving way. I pray for those. So many here today that you've done that, that you have moved in their life, you have drawn them to you, you have shown them. I pray that you would continue to grow us to know and love you more fully, that we would truly be people of your word, that we would let your word stand over us in every area of our lives. And it would be for your honor and your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.